0: This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station.
1: Good afternoon. You are listening to Health & Living. I'm Lee Chui Lin. Uh, It is Friday. Which means that I'm joined by our doctor in the house, Dr. George Lee, consulting urologist. Welcome Good afternoon, Lynn. Hello.
2: Yeah, hello. It looks like it's not raining today. Well, well don't it's about too to too <laughs> It is to. Friday after all. Yes. The whole town is going to be gridlocked later, right?
1: Well, don't curse people. Don't Just curse because people. because we're in well, a cushy well, well,
2: uh, studio. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least we're going to have lots of men kind of sitting in the car listening to the show. And then, you know, because today we have a very special guest.
1: We do. We have Dr. Trinity uh, Bivalakwa, Director of Urolo- Urologic Oncology from Johns Hopkins. Um, welcome to the show.
2: Show. Thank you. Nice to be here. Just what? landed. Yes, <laughs> That's right. Literally. Sure did. That's right. Sure did. From Baltimore. That's right. That's right. And we Thank somehow so Shanghai
1: you into coming in here. <laughs> That's
2: right.
0: Thank you so much for coming. No problem. It's great and to be here.
1: What are you in town for?
0: So I'm here for the third. Um, uh, men's Health men's Summit. Men's Health Summit. Uh, I've actually been to this summit two years ago when it was in uh, Taipei. And I think uh, the purpose of this meeting is really just to educate uh, a lot of the urologists in Asia about uh, different uh, aspects of men's health, in particular sexual dysfunction and uh, prostate uh, health. Mm, but you're giving a talk tomorrow, right? Yeah. So tomorrow, I'm I'm going to talk about, uh, in particular, sexual dysfunction after uh, treatment for uh, prostate cancer. Yeah,
2: right. Mainly robotic radical prostatectomy, or not necessarily? No, yet? no,
0: not necessarily. I think uh, I think my, my sort of t- talk and, and uh, what we're going to discuss is really what happens after treatment for prostate cancer. Could be pr- uh, treatment such as radiation therapy or even surgery. Mm.
1: And. We're talking today in particular about um, prostate cancer and the prostate in general, Um, slightly because there was a survey released that we read about on the BBC in which it stated awareness of the prostate gland is dangerously low in British men. Um, Now, did this surprise you when you read it? Oh, when you heard of it?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, it doesn't surprise me that men don't know what the prostate does. Uh, <laughs> right. So a, a lot of the discussion that I have when I see patients is they say, you know, what, what is this thing? What, what, why is it there? Uh, so there's a lot of education that we have to do to our patients. Um, uh, so it's not surprising that they don't know what it does, but uh, it do- is a little surprising that that uh, that they're not necessarily uh, sure of where it is or, or, or you know, what its function is.
2: Well, I mean, this article, I mean, when, when I... I read it. I actually found it alarming, and it was only published last last week, about two weeks ago. I mean, essentially saying that out of the one thousand nine hundred men survey in the United Kingdom, they have ninety two percent of them were clueless of the gland's role, and then fifty four percent of them did not know where it is, and seventeen percent actually didn't know it, they even had a prostate. I was like, I, it reminded me of when I was in the UK. We did a survey, and then uh, you know we sent it out to the British Telecom engineers. And Actually, had a um, true and false question. Actually said, um, men um, and women have both have prostate, but women's prostate are smaller. Therefore, they have less problem with urinary symptoms. True or false? And it's something like eighty percent of them actually say it's true. So I thought maybe this is British sense of humor rather than, no, than actually. Actually,
0: true. that reminds me of a nice story. So when when I talk to patients about prostate cancer, actually their wives are oftentimes in the middle will say, "Well, could you tell me? You know, am I at risk?" of getting (laughs) prostate cancer. So that is... uh, Well,
2: initially, I thought it is kind of like typical British humor. But, you know, eventually when we analyze it, and then that was true. So it will be interesting to open up the line to the general public to find out, you know, do they know what the role of the prostate is? Can they probably call in to tell us about it? No. Yes,
1: I, no, no. I yeah. agree with that. I'm hoping that we get honest answers. That's right. <laughs> that we don't no, get people, no, no, you know, right. looking it up now and then giving us a call. Yeah. Uh, but regardless, um, if you've got a question on men's health, I think we've got two experts in today, uh, but also about your prostate in particular, give us a call. That number is zero three seven seven one zero nine thousand. You can also text zero one six two zero one nine thousand or tweet us at BFM Radio. So for, you know, for the people listening who might be thinking okay, you know, um, I feel slightly ashamed now. I'm a little bit worried. I don't know what the prostate is or does. Um, I don't think I'll have anybody better to tell me about it. So tell me, what is the prostate? What does it do? Where is it?
0: Sure. So um, I think uh, it, this is what I tell my the patients that come in uh, to see me. I mean, the prostate gland is its purpose really is just to provide nutrients to sperm to allow them to uh, maturate to mature and to actually uh, be able to fertilize their partner. So the prostate really is just there as as a young man to be able to allow sperm to mature and it provides nutrients and nutrients is just really it's just sugar, right? So fructose, mm-hmm. uh, and and once uh, you are beyond the uh, childbearing age, you really doesn't have much of a role. It mm-hmm. really doesn't do much, uh, and it's really just a part—a part of the body that that is just uh, at risk for cancer overgrowth, which causes problems with urination. Um, and and I think uh, once a man understands that, then it becomes a little bit easier to uh, counsel them about you know what, what the best way to uh, manage their symptoms.
1: But it's not fair to think of it then as a sort of sexual. Appendix is it? I mean, because the appendix.
2: No, <laughs> well, now, no, no. Now. Well, I, I thought there was another sexual appendix, but uh, <laughs> well, Lynn probably have a different idea.
1: Well, no, you know, I was just thinking about it in terms of appendicitis. You know, it, it oh, where, where you can right. say, look, you can remove that, and it really is, it really does serve no function, and once it's gone, it's gone. Um, but when it comes to something that did used to serve a function and now doesn't anymore, oh, that's what you mean. It can- all right, oh, we you yes. were getting worried there. No, I didn't say appendix. <laughs> right, appendix. Um, but yeah, so, is it fair to think of it that way or? so
2: it 's a redundant organ that actually after you know after point. reproductive age and then has nothing better and there 's no further functions right well in a way well the the problem i uh, I assume is that um if you kind of like um I assume we don 't really know. Much about prostate in many ways because we don't really know why the prostate continue to grow after certain reproductive age certain group of people may um, have risk of cancer and certain groups will not and you know which cancer will develop into more serious um, pathology and which will not and I think that's part of the reason
0: why people are confused you know Um, what do you think? Yeah so I I think um, you know when it comes to prostate uh, growth right Uh, you know men in the United States in the Western world, they are at higher risk of having enlarged prostates. And that's a lot of what we eat in in the United States, you know, so that affects what we eat will affect actually how we make different um, hormones, right? So testosterone is used to allow, um, uh, you know, your, your sexual glands to grow, including the prostate. Mm -hmm. But also, if you are eating uh, heavy, um, fatty foods, you can actually have more estrogen made, which makes the prostate grow even more. So, in the Western world, actually, you're at higher risk of having an enlarged prostate versus Asia, for example. It's just um, like some
2: studies to show that in Japanese men right. who move to California suddenly will have yeah. prostate problems. Yeah. Is
0: that right? So that's right. So if a man born in Japan or, and, and has, lives there all their life, their risk of prostate cancer is actually lower than that in the United States. But if you take a man who is born in Japan and you move him to the United States at, say, 10 years of age, their risk of prostate cancer goes to exactly that of a of men that live in uh, North America. Mm. So that would suggest that it's a lot of environmental factors. Mm.
1: We have a call from Dan about prostate cancer. Oh, no, we don't. Uh, But he did want to ask, what are the symptoms?
0: Mm. hmm. Go ahead, you please.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, we hope that majority of people present with prostate cancer have uh, no symptoms at all because by the time they actually have symptoms, most of them are a little bit too late. You know, we we would like to probably classify prostate cancer into the early stage prostate cancer and the late stage prostate cancer. The late stage prostate cancer will probably have, um, you know, back pain, blood in the urine, blood in the semen, obstruction. And then these are serious symptoms. However, we're hoping to capture... Men who actually have no symptom at all and then uh, through screening and visiting their doctors actually have um, high PSA or abnormal feeling prostate. I mean, how many proportion? I remember the days when, you know, I was in medical school. We still have something a third of men in the UK presented with late prostate cancer. I mean, I think… The time has changed. It's been 30 years, and with the availability of PSA and generalized screening, that has made a lot of difference. How many of those patients you see at the John Hopkins actually presented
0: late? Right. So when you classify prostate cancer, you have to classify it into different risk stratifications. So you have low risk, you have intermediate risk, and high risk. The high risk are those that you're talking about right now, people that have really advanced stage, very aggressive cancer. And what we're learning and what we're finding is in the last 5 to 10 years, we're finding more high-risk prostate cancer, mm. uh, whereas in the past it was less than 20% of all those Diagnosed now, it's it's now increasing, and the reason why is is because PSA screening is less prevalent in the United States because there were some um, uh, governing agencies that felt like it wasn't necessary. Mm. So when we reduce screening, we're actually seeing more men presenting with higher risk disease. So this is something that uh, that I would I would encourage men to see their doctors, uh, have their prostate examined as well as check a PSA once you get into fifty sixty years of age.
2: I'm mm. I'm glad you brought that up because you know this controversy about screening. I mean, in Malaysia, we have this very interesting uh, system. The people who can afford it, who are health conscious, actually will go and purchase healthcare, they will just do self screening. And then um, the the worrisome thing about that is that there's no counselling, they obviously don't know what they have. And then whenever they get the PSA reading that's abnormal, it always create a lot of anxiety. And in, in certain countries in Europe, for example, there's uh, kind of like overall screening for people in certain populations. I mean, in the States, I'm surprised that, you know, the healthcare provision doesn't actually roll out, um, you know, screening. What's your view
0: on that? Yeah, so it, in the United States, it's actually the primary care physician, so the, the internists that are doing the screening, not the urologists. Mm-hmm. So not not the men, not the uh, uh, physicians that are actually more educated about it. So if you if you screen wisely, so you, just, you look at people that have risk factors, family history, people that are older. And when I say older, I'm not talking about you know, 80 years of age. Once you, know, you get into your 50s, 60 years of age, you should consider PSA screening. And that should be done by a specialist. Um, in the United States, the internists are doing it. Mm. And their governing agencies have told them, you don't need to do that. We don't. We think that we overdiagnose prostate cancer in the United States, and if you overdiagnose, that means you overtreat, over-treat. which then means you have more problems or complications from that treatment. So we've gone completely, you know, one eighty with this. Yeah, uh, because
2: uh, a decade ago, is that you, said, uh, you everyone, screen everybody, right. you
0: treat everybody,
2: right? I mean, now, so what you're saying at the Hopkins actually, um, it's more
0: targeted. Is yeah, that right? Absolutely. So even in the internationally, so if you look in the UK, you look in Asia, there are more men that are diagnosed with low-risk prostate cancer. So that's the type of cancer that I describe as, as really chronic disease. It's kind of like having hypertension, right, where you're not actually going to take out their prostate or radiate them. You're going to follow them closely because their disease progression or chance of spread is so low. You just watch them. And active surveillance in the United States is 50% of men that are diagnosed with low-risk prostate cancer are getting active surveillance. In the UK, it's about 45%. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're seeing now more active surveillance in low-risk disease, whereas in 1995, 100% of those people were going to get treated. Right. So we're, we're, we're doing that in order to help reduce the burden of risk uh, that, that is on patients.
1: Well, I want to talk about that active surveillance, um, and how patients get comfortable with it. Uh, but in the meantime, we have to take a short break. If you've got any questions, give us a call. That number is 0377109000. I see LTY on the line. Please hold. Uh, you can also drop us a text at 0162019000 or tweet us at BFM radio. More after this. Good afternoon. You are listening to Health and Living on The Bigger Picture. I'm Lee Tree Lynn. That voice you might have heard sneaking in right at the end there was uh, Dr. Trinity Biblako. We're comparing um, who's
2: older, who's going to have prostate <laughs> problem first.
1: <laughs> Which is what we're talking about. Um, and that voice, of course, was Dr. George Lee. We're talking today about um, prostate health, prostate cancer specifically, but prostate health overall as well. We've got some callers on the line. Uh, let's kick things off with LTY. Good afternoon, LTY. Yeah, good afternoon. Hi, LTY. Good
2: afternoon, Dr. George and uh, good afternoon, our uh, good doctor from Baltimore, am I right?
0: Yes, that's right, yeah, from yeah. uh, Johns Hopkins. How you okay. yeah. Thank you.
2: Yeah, yeah, yes, okay. I, I'm asking about lachnid cell and Sertoli cell. Uh, because as we age, uh, all these slowly diminish. My question is it's not so much about physical side, but more on the mental, psychological, and emotional response, mm. especially for elderly people, okay? you yeah. kind of, kind of tell us a bit bit your experience. Maybe you, you have dealing with elderly people. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks, LTY. Thank you well okay well LTY it's a wrong organ I'm afraid (laughs) Right you know LTY was talking Sertoli cell and LADIC cells Uh, essentially these are the two uh, predominant cells in the testicles and what he was talking about is that you know since we have prostate that has gone redundant now whether the testicles will go redundant as well well Sertoli cell will continue to um, nurture the sperm's production although it might diminish with age but the sperm will hopefully still kind of flourishing still reproducing the LADIC cell actually will probably diminish its function as well and then the testosterone will start declining and some people will have these kind of like a male menopause kind of like symptoms. Andropause, Andropause, yeah. that's right, L-T-Y. So if you feel a bit grumpy or your wife thinks you're a bit grumpy and then you put on a bit of weight and then you know, you're know you not sleeping well, a bit forgetful, and then your libido is a bit down, we need to get your latex cell checked and your testosterone level checked. All right, thank you.
1: We have a question here from On about a PSA reading. Good afternoon, On. Hi, On. Hi, good afternoon. Yeah, hi, hello. Hello. And, uh, yeah, fine, thank you. Thank you, you too. Hey, I have a question. Uh, two, in fact. <clears throat> One is, I do a regular medical checkup yearly, and I have an erratic PSA reading, you know. Some years it is nine, and sometimes it is six, you know. So is that considered high risk or low risk? And uh, again, uh, you know,
2: I, I'm not sure whether it is, it is serious or not because of the fluctuation. Secondly, <clears throat> the sexual activity, uh, what do you call that, make your prostrate even uh, more Mm, can, I okay. knew that question was no. going to come because recently yeah. there's a study to say the more you ejaculate, the less you get prostate cancer. We're going to get right. that. They've, been, they've <laughs> been saying that for many years. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so. <laughs> okay. So, um, well, we, we'll see
0: whether Dr. Trinity has got any question to ask you on. So, okay. I think one of the things to know about PSA is, is that it can be erratic, it can move around. Uh, and if it's common for a man to have a PSA that may be a, a one. Two points uh, b- uh, up or down, and and that is common. Uh, however, uh, you have to recognize that depending on your age, uh, it uh, you could 67, 57. 57? yeah, six, six, seven. 67. sixty-seven. Okay, so at sixty-seven years of age, if you just look at all comers, the median PSA is going to be around four, mm. four and a half um uh could be uh, it could be a little bit less could be could be uh higher depending on your weight uh but nonetheless uh, if you have a reading that 's consistently above Four and in your case sounds like you're getting up to almost 10, that is something that that should be evaluated by a specialist, in particular urologist, um, because you have to be concerned at that point that this may be related to one of three things. Uh, it, It could be related to an infection of the prostate. Um, And a man that has an infection of the prostate, you'll have problems going to the bathroom. Uh, And what I mean by that, it may be increased frequency to urinate. You may actually have some burning with urination. You can have some foul-smelling urine. You have pressure in the prostate. It swells. Uh, the other is enlargement of a prostate. So if your prostate grows and it grows bigger than, say, the, the, the average uh, man or your friend, your PSA will also go up. Uh, PSA is not specific for prostate cancer. It's specific for a prostate gland. Mm. So as, our, as we get older, our gland grows. Thus, our PSA goes up. And then thirdly is obviously prostate cancer. Yeah. So I, I, would, I would encourage you to see someone to uh, talk about uh, your risk. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, On.
2: I mean, majority of patients, like I said earlier on, in our country, that they go uh, health shopping. They will just do all these tests themselves, rather than in our, uh, you know, in the states. Presumably, the the primary care physicians will roll out the PSA on um, after counselling. So, for somebody in this situation, if you um, in the states, if you kind of come up with a ballpark figure, what do you think it, the Gut feelings. That percentage of detecting cancer uh, using a biopsy.
0: Yeah. So if you look at uh, all comers, uh, especially at the 67 years of age, at least a third of those are mm. going to have uh, prostate cancer. Yeah. However, remember the majority of those cancers are low grade. Mm. They're low risk, and those are those are the ones that we survey, and we don't do much for. Well, this is, this is part of the problem. Is that you know, first
2: of all. On has got these fluctuating uh, PSA, and then he's obviously uh, a bit concerned about it. And then, then we have to give him statistics to say, okay, 30%, maybe we might detect cancer, but we may not necessarily treat you. And then that puts him into this position where, okay, if I have a biopsy, I may not even have uh, treatment. Do you get patients who will get tremendous amount of anxiety when you decide that, look, you know,
0: you got cancer, but we're just watching it even at the age of 67. Yeah. So, so when you, <laughs> so it's a great question. And, and yes, any type of cancer diagnosis, doesn't matter if it's colon cancer, breast cancer, prostate, bladder cancer, it is very anxiety provoking. Uh, and it's, it's a difficult process that the patient and their family has to deal with. Um, that's why they have to see someone that can help them uh, understand their mm-hmm. risk. But if you are diagnosed with prostate cancer, uh, I, you know, what I tell folks is, is that nowadays in the United States, 50% of people aren't even really even going to get treated. Mm. And we can safely survey them. Uh, but uh, in the UK, since we're talking about the UK, the UK have done a lot of work with using um, imaging like uh, MRIs to look at the prostate to be able to detect cancers so a man doesn't have to undergo a biopsy or mm. can be followed without having an invasive procedure. So you're going to see one day people going to less invasive things like MRI.
1: How do you emotionally prepare for being actively surveyed? You know, because it feels like you use the word active, but it's a very but it feels passive because, you know, there is no treatment. I but, love that.
2: You know, so, it's like, it
0: is true. You know, it's, it's an oxymoron. Yeah, so active surveillance is, uh, the way to think about it is, is you are following expectantly a cancer that you know if it gets reclassified, Means becomes a more dangerous cancer. We can still cure you, and we can still treat you without without any real risk to you. So once you un- once a patient understands that yes, I have a cancer, it's low grade, it's not doing much to me, and I now am going to undergo this surveillance protocol, which is actually pretty uh, pretty good. Just PSAs every six months, an MRI, and a biopsy one twelve to eighteen every twelve to eighteen months. You know that if you get reclassified, it can still cure you. So once they understand that, they're more willing to do it. Now, the other option is well, I'm going to get treated, like have it removed, have radiation, and then you're going to have side effects. So it's that trade off. They're more worried about side effects. Mm-hmm.
1: We have um, a message here. Well, I mean, earlier we were talking about what happens with those fluctuations, with putting the patient in a spot where they have to decide what to do. And we've got one here. Um, this patient, this person's over 70. I have a PSA level which fluctuates between 4 to 10. Um, and I've had a biopsy three times which showed prostatitis. Uh, do I need any further biopsies?
0: Yeah, I mean, for someone like that, there is. Uh, they, I wouldn't be doing any further biopsies. <laughs> you uh, won't I, have much prostate I, left. Yeah, <laughs> I, I would. I would continue to follow because we know that, that if you look at statistics about men that die of prostate cancer from advanced metastatic prostate cancer, they're all above the age of 70. Not all, but the majority. So mm-hmm. it's still a dangerous disease as we get older and should be surveyed. But that individual, if, they, if they're really worried, I would get an MRI to make mm-hmm. sure that we're not missing something.
1: Um- my PSA value is actually at a grey zone. Um, should my doctor run free PSA with DRE?
2: Yeah. Oh, love that question oh, wow. because great obviously, question. yeah, great question. Yeah. Because you know um, what I wanted to say was you know before on our previous caller wanted to decide whether he should have the biopsy or not. In Malaysia, we will have all sorts of things free PSA, but we don't have PCA three, mm-hmm. which I would like you to explain a little bit. Sometimes we have to send them across to uh, to Europe to have that checked. So I just want to find out your view, to make this PSA a lot more sensitive than its current situation?
0: So uh, the question that that we're talking about right now is is to be able to uh, allow us to understand what PSA is. So where is it coming from, right? Just like as I said earlier, it can come from a benign gland or from cancer. So free PSAs, PCA3, Uh, something called a pre-pro PSA. These are all things that could actually be coming from cancer. So when you take a blood test, just like your PSA is a blood test, we will then perform additional biomarkers. You hear these terms biomarkers. These are biomarkers. These are blood tests that are going to look for more uh, PSA that's specifically coming from cancer. And that's what these tests are doing. In the United States, it's highly prevalent. I mean, everybody's getting... It's a big uh, industry. Oh, it's a huge industry industry so uh, and and but that being said we're talking about industry and that implies that it's a big money (laughs) but but it's also it also works and it also if used correctly by a specialist you you can reduce biopsies and also help understand where that high PSA is coming from. Mm
2: -hmm. Well essentially it gives you
0: probability is that right? Mm -hmm. It helps you uh, make decision make a decision about biopsy or not.
1: So to come back to the listener then is that something that he should ask for?
0: It's not. A, it's a. It's a, Yes, he should ask for that. Yeah, okay. Before he make up his mind. Okay.
2: Right. Before we forget, ejaculation and reduction of prostate cancer. I need to you to
0: clarify oh, that. I, I mean, listen. <laughs> for the last for the last probably thirty plus years, people have uh, stated that uh, if you ejaculate more that you will get rid of some of all of that um, Toxin. stagnant toxins that are in the prostate. <laughs> so therefore, uh, we'll, we'll reduce your risk. How of, much more uh, is more? Uh, well, great question, George. <laughs> no, uh, I, I don't know. No, you don't know. Uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not convinced that that works. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, is that
1: valid? <laughs> I mean, it before we not, get to yeah, how yeah. often, That's right, how about often validity. validity.
2: Well, actually, most men don't even remember how often, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I mean, seriously, it's like, how do they come up with studies like that to say, you know, um, frequency
0: of uh, ejaculation will reduce uh, prostate cancer? It is. They are not done well. The mm. studies are done where you look back and you say, okay, I have a group of people with prostate cancer. Uh, you, know, you then ask them or document how mm. often they were ejaculated and then try to correlate it with mm. risk of prostate cancer. That is not the best level of evidence, and and, and I really don't yeah, think I mean, much of it. Trinity, I know you're you,
2: um, going to focus later on on um, treatment of prostate cancer and also related se- uh, uh, related sexual health impairment and how do we overcome that. But do you think… Prostate enlargement is associated with sexual dysfunction. Yeah,
0: actually, if you look at um, if you look at the two biggest causes of sexual dysfunction in men, uh, erectile dysfunction, so inability to have an erection for intercourse, um, the the two biggest factors are age, uh, BPH, enlarged prostate. Diabetes and in sort of uh, cardiovascular risk factors like smoking, hypertension, high blood pressure, uh, problems with your uh, cholesterol. So the answer is yes, absolutely.
2: Is it the chicken and egg situation? Is cause
0: yeah. or effect?
2: You know, just like you know, is it the enlargement that resulted in impairment of flow of blood to the to the penis, or is it because of lack of flow to the penis actually resulting in prostate enlargement? I think it's all
0: of the above, all the above, um, and, I, and I also think in different that people, in different people, yeah. right, and it's all. Also, the people that are being seen for BPH, which is an enlarged prostate, are being seen by a urologist. And, would you th- and the urologists are g- going to do, guess what? They're going to ask about their erections. So sort of they go along because you're seeing someone that's going to be inquiring about that. Mm.
1: If you've got any questions um, about your health, um, in general, your but also health. your prostate health specifically, um, give us a call. That number is 0377109000. You can also text 0162019000 or tweet us at BFM Radio. Now, that point about sexual function, um, is it something that drives men to the doctor or keeps them away? Mm-hmm. Because I feel like it's a double-edged sword. Because on the one hand, it might be something that concerns you so deeply that you think, okay, no, I need to get this sorted out. And on the other hand, you might be, well, you know, just a bit ashamed, a bit worried and decide that, no, I'm going to keep this to myself.
0: Yeah, so I think uh, the best way to think about that is, is prior to 1998, um, uh, uh, right? So 1998 was the introduction of Viagra. Uh, men did not talk to their doctors about this at all. And there was very little discussion. There was very little awareness. There was very little understanding. Uh, 1998, Viagra comes out, and it's, it's the exact opposite. Now, men are more comfortable because they're seeing ads on, on TV. They're seeing things on in the newspaper. We don't have that. It is no. still,
2: it, we're still not allowed. Oh, um, in okay. all well,
0: Medication advertisement is still um, – I think um, ban in, in well, some way. Well, I, well, you know, I can. That's probably why men potentially in Malaysia aren't 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 really aren't talking coming to forward the and coming <laughs> forward.
1: Having said that, I would disagree that there is no cultural awareness of the little blue pill. You know, yeah. everyone knows it exists. So, right. you know, to be fair, we have shows
2: like this to make it aware. <laughs> well, no,
1: but, but even without us, I would that's think right. you know people know of its existence because it was well, such a huge thing. Yeah. So, um, I I I wonder whether it's something else. You know, whether people just continue to be more shy about talking to their doctor about things that they feel don't belong in the clinic.
0: So it's, it's, it's also about a cult, uh, about a, sort of the age distribution. So if you look, if you ask a, a 30-year-old man, are they comfortable talking to their doctor about it? Absolutely. They're not going to have a problem. Uh, sort of the millennial, they'll text about it for, forever, <laughs> right? I mean, right. it's not a big deal for them. But a man who grew up in the, you know, 40s, 30s, 50s, they, they didn't, their parents, this was not something they discussed. So, therefore, they're not going to, they're going to be less willing to talk to their doctor about you it.
1: You get one birds and bees talk and then it's over. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and then from then on, exactly. we'll never speak of this again. <laughs> well,
2: what's that? <laughs> well, I mean, after all, you know, you just mentioned 1998. It's been 18 years, right? Okay. I mean, I, I um, you know, I was probably trained in the UK and I, I agree with you that it is an age. Uh, kind of like uh, dis- disparity in terms of like you know people people coming forward to talk about sexual health, but in general, I still think there is a stigma both in the West and in uh, in the East uh, when it comes to sexual health because you always worry about being judged in many ways.
0: Yeah, it's it's embarrassing for some men. So, uh, but you have to understand that this is part of life. This is part of getting older. This is part of growing, and and you need to talk about it. And, and there's things to help.
1: Before we take a break for the market update, um, a question from Yong that I actually wanted to ask myself, so I'm glad that Yong is going to. Good afternoon, Yong. Yeah, good afternoon. Your question?
2: Uh, yes. Uh, earlier, uh, the doctors mentioned uh, childbearing age. For male, I believe uh, the childbearing age uh, far extended beyond female. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, um, yeah, I well, thought you I used the term,
1: so. Uh, you both used the term reproductive age when talking about the prostate, and mm. it was something I was curious about too, because I mean, don't you kind of just keep reproducing <laughs> Never forever? Sees, right? yeah. <laughs> I mean, we we have a sort of deadline, I guess, right, but okay. with men.
0: Yeah, so I I would say that men have deadlines as well, uh, and as we get older, you know, our ability to to produce sperm and for those sperm to work and to work well is less and and but men ha, are able to uh, to have children into their you know 60 70s 80s to it's, be honest it's
2: called the Mick Jagger syndrome yeah that's
1: right <laughs> <laughs> so I hope that helps young thanks no, for calling right? yeah, okay.
2: thank well i mean some some of us can only Kind of like a live to hope like that rock rock star really isn't it? <laughs>
1: it's irresponsible.
2: <laughs> irresponsible. Anyway,
1: <laughs> we'll be taking a break for the market update now, um, but we'll be back right after this with uh, Dr. George Lee and Dr. Trinity Bivalacqua. We're talking about um, prostate awareness and prostate health, prostate cancer. Um, there was there were some questions that have come in via Twitter. We'll get to that right after this. We have a call on the line. We'll get to that too. Uh, if you'd like to join in, give us a call. That number is zero three seven seven one zero nine thousand. You can also text zero one six. Two zero one nine thousand, or tweet us at BFM Radio. Good afternoon. You are listening to Health and Living. I'm Lee Trellin. I'm joined in the studio as always by Dr. George Lee, consultant urologist, and we have as our guest today Dr. Trinity Vivalakwa, director of U- Urologic Oncology at Johns Hopkins Hospital. Um, and we've been talking about prostate awareness, particularly prostate cancer. And we have a call from Richie. Good afternoon, Richie. Okay. Don't. Uh, but what he did want to ask was, um, doctors say that his prostate is growing. Um, he is seventy-five years old. He wants to know, does he have cancer?
0: So. Uh, the best thing to know about prostates are is that they grow and they get bigger as we age. That does not necessarily reflect cancer. So the way that we check a prostate is by is by uh, pr- by actually feeling and touching it. Um, it is done through the rectum, uh, transrectally, uh, so we we can feel the prostate. If it feels hard, if it if If you could actually feel what we describe as a nodule or a mass, then that's more indicative of cancer. But if it's smooth and just big, that does not necessarily mean that you have cancer and I would say probably not.
2: Mm. I mean, this is what uh, we refer to as digital rectal examination, isn't it? I mean, which is
1: uh, something that Harry Tay wanted to. Yeah, you know. Know,
2: Harry Tay wanted to know how do you examine a prostate? Well, Harry, you can't do self-examination like breast, uh, you know, examination. I'm sorry. However, um, digital rectal examination is done by a urologist or a uh, physician. and essentially, it's a very simple uh, finger um, just to feel the tex- uh, the kind of consistent consistency of your prostate. It's not tender, and it will last, like, seconds, you know. Some people are horrified. I mean, I get people who insist on looking at the size of my finger before they actually do, accepting, you know, whether they, uh, they ought to have digital rectal examination. Actually, you know, most of them are... Probably horrified by movies, a portrayal of, you know, what happens to you after the examination. It's
1: also a no-go area for a lot of people, I think. You know, it's just <laughs> right. thought of as, as well, Sacred. you know, yes, just nobody's going there. <laughs> is, right. is that a problem when it comes to prostate health? Um, people well, think, might be a bit think, precious about sort of the region we're talking about. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so a lot of uh, primary doctors and urologists won't even examine men. or Are you uh, serious? B- because that l- because they're, they're scared that, that the man's going to be hurt or they're going to be offended, so they won't do it. But you just have to s- essentially get over it, you know, bend over and here comes the finger. I mean, <laughs> well, okay, so bend over. <laughs> uh, a couple of things to
1: address from that. Uh, firstly, Harry has um, added on to his question and he says, um, which line of doctors would be the ones to mm. check for prostate cancer?
0: Yeah, I think your internist is is capable um, of of feeling the prostate. And if they feel anything that, that is abnormal, then you should see a specialist. Yeah. A internist in, in Malaysia we, we call G- general GPs. practitioners. General yeah. yeah. practitioners, right. yeah. So a general yeah. practitioner is capable. Yeah. And if they feel anything abnormal, you should be directly referred to a urologist.
1: One of the things that I wanted to – I mean, we didn't get to talk to Richie. But one of the uh, things that came to mind from his question is – His doctor says his prostate is growing, but he needed to kind of come here to ask whether he might have cancer. Now, um, is there a problem with communication then? Because, I mean, when I heard it from the both of you, it was very clear to me that it's, you know, a growing prostate is a normal thing. And I think he should have been okay asking his doctor that question. So I don't know where the miscommunication happened in that situation, if he perhaps didn't ask or the doctor didn't say. But is there a problem with kind of communicating clearly This is what's happening. This does not necessarily mean cancer.
2: Mm. I mean, early on, we were talking about, um, you know, we've been doing this show for seven years. And then, (laughs) you know, and then we talk about prostate, prostate, prostate all the time. But now we still have statistics like this showing that, you know, 17% of people don't even know they have a prostate. And then, you know, 55% of people don't know where it is. I think we made as physicians and also um, in many ways, Lynn, you are um, a healthcare advocate, right? Okay, Okay. right. And a broadcaster, a healthcare broadcaster. And I think we make too many assumptions, you know, that, you know, people naturally just understand when we talk about prostate, we we make assumptions that, you know, where it is, what it functions for, and that sort of thing. And people are too shy uh, to to ask us to elaborate. I think with statistics like this, it actually highlights that we really need to go down to basics when we talk to patients about this.
0: And I think the thing to keep in mind is that a, a primary GP uh, or a urologist, sometimes they have a lot of patients to see. And they don't actually spend that extra, what, two or three minutes, five minutes to explain it. And that's just the sign of, of the medical field today. Um, but if you have questions as a patient, you should ask. Just slow down. Tell me what's going on. Help me, help me get through this. Yeah.
1: Because do I have cancer is a very basic question that I think, you know, everybody should be able to ask their doctor because it's scary. You know, and it's better you ask your doctor than Google. So,
0: in the United States, you can actually tweet your doctor now, and, and uh, actually all all uh, patients have the ability to communicate with physicians, their physician, uh, via a portal. It's called a healthcare portal where they can give essentially questions uh, online to mm. their to their physician, and, and and we're required by law to answer it.
2: Ah.
1: Yeah. Would you want that to happen here, oh, Doctor George? Even,
2: I don't even know how to tweet. <laughs> 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 <That's>, <laughs> neither, neither do I. But I mean.
1: <laughs> these are your official lines, no, no, and you're sticking right, to it. Okay. Um, right. If you've got any questions about prostate cancer or prostate health, um, give us a call. It's our final call for calls. It's zero three seven seven one zero nine thousand. You can also text zero one six two zero one nine thousand or tweet us at BFM Radio. Uh, now. Okay, we'll do the tweet first. Um, Uma Anel says, please, can you talk a little bit about treatment for metastatic prostate cancer? Because I think we've been talking so far about, you know, cancer that's still, you know, uh, confined Curable. to the prostate. Yeah, yes. Exactly.
0: Now these are the kind of advanced cancer. Yeah, so prostate cancer, if, if it is to spread... Um, it is treated very differently than, than uh, if you have an intention to cure it up front. So we've talked a little bit about surgery, a little bit about radiation, but once you've developed metastatic or cancer spread outside the prostate to other parts of the body, one of the most common places prostate cancer spreads is to the bone. Um, uh, this is treated very differently. It's treated with hormonal therapy, so hormonal therapy, uh, just like uh, breast cancer is treated with hormonal therapies or manipulation, uh, testosterone is actually one is is the uh, key component that actually allows prostate cancer to grow and to, and to, uh, and to um, divide so if you deplete the uh, man 's uh, body of testosterone, then it allows, uh, that is then it allows the cancer to stop growing or mm-hmm. to at least slow down and Metastatic prostate cancer is treated with uh, with something called androgen deprivation therapy or ADT. Where uh, where we deplete the body of testosterone, and that can absolutely slow down uh, prostate cancer growth. With uh, if you have metastatic disease,
2: and, and recently there are more advances in right. terms of targeted therapy to to deal with um, patients who don't respond anymore to hormone. Is that true?
0: Yeah, that's right. So you know. Once again, at, at, at our place, at Johns Hopkins, there's been some very recent discoveries that have been able to tell us uh, what patient will respond to hormonal therapy or chemotherapy or other more, more uh, novel approaches like immunotherapy. So these are, these are things that, that, once again, a specialist, mm-hmm. um, a medical oncologist uh, that treats patients with prostate cancer uh, should be aware of.
1: We have a call here from Nash. Good afternoon, Nash.
0: Hi, Nash. Hi. Hi. Hi,
2: hi. Hi, doctors. Uh, quick question. If the prostate is not a vital organ, and after you pass the age that you don't have kids, and you may be at risk of getting cancer when you're older, why not just get it removed like mm. the console? Yeah. Thanks just for the call, Mesh. Just Thank like you. we do a jolie on it, <laughs> 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 we just, um, you know, prophylactically right. remove it since it's not not that important.
0: Yeah, so the reason why we don't just remove it is, is because if you remove your prostate, you are uh, you you are setting yourself up for for Potenti- problems, potential, uh, uh, potential complications, side effects, complications. The two most common are urinary incontinence or leakage, as well as uh, erectile dysfunction or sexual dysfunction, and these are these are treatments that uh, that may that, that can't be treated with a simple pill. Mm. Um, so the, at, at that case, you you would be setting yourself up for uh, more problems. So the, the we always talk about risk-benefit. The mm. risk is much higher than the actual benefit. Yeah.
2: I mean, I'm glad that question was asked because, you know, there are many people who wanted to go for operations such as radical prostatectomy using robots. You know, we um, the the hero around uh, recent years in around this area is, you know, the premier from Singapore. Li Shenlong actually had radical prostatectomy. I mean, what sort of... Um, rate of complications for erectile dysfunction or incontinence. Would you cope, patients, when you counsel them? Yeah.
0: Once again, all dependent on their age. Uh, but the average age of someone uh, undergoing a prostatectomy is in their mid-sixties. So you know, in about sixty-five. Uh, if you are less than 60 years of age uh, or 65 years of age for that matter, chances of having permanent leakage or incontinence is about 10 percent. Mm. Uh, not know, that high. Not not bad, but but nonetheless.
1: Enough to worry
0: about uh, it, uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. 10 out of 100 patients are yeah. going to have, have significant – have to wear pads. Right. Have to wear pads and this is permanent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then as far as sexual dysfunction, that number is actually greater than 50 percent of Five patients. Five zero. Oh, yeah. Now, what happens is you get a lot of um, things – Written on online, you hear things about the, sort of the propaganda about like, oh, don't worry, the rates of ED or sexual dysfunction is less if you have it done robotically versus the traditional open approach. The problem is is that they're, they're, it's all the same. doesn't matter how you take it out. You're mm. still at risk. Are they still manageable with the blue pill, the 18-year-old yeah. blue pill? So the, the, uh, the blue little blue pill, or Viagra, uh, does work. Uh, it helps, but honestly, it, it's, it's really, this is something that is permanent and is best treated with potentially a pill, but more like injection therapy or even surgery. Mm.
1: We have a question from uh, Mr. Ng, um, which I think is a very good one. Good afternoon, yeah.
2: Mr. Ng.
0: Good afternoon, Lee. Your question? Uh, My question is uh, What's the
2: uh, biological function of phosphate in the first place? Well, Trinity, come on! You know you're for the call. on
0: biological functions of the prostate. The biological function of the prostate is is really uh, it's it's present as as we get older and as a young man. And I'll use the reproductive age uh, yeah. is is really just to provide uh, the health to the uh, sperm that are running through it uh, on its way out. Yeah, it's a um, nutrient provider. Yeah. It's a gluc- It's a fructose provider. Fructose. Yeah. <laughs> That's it's just. Right. It's. like that. It's
2: person, a sugar gland. So it's
1: like that person that hands. Drinks to runners, yeah, on a, the, in the, a marathon. The,
2: the
0: water boy, <laughs>
1: yeah, the water boy. That's exactly. Uh, yeah, there you go. Prostate.
0: Yeah, it's it's there to it's there to help uh, the sperm mature and really just to grow, uh, and and that way they can function when they get out of the get out of their uh, home environment. Well, technically,
2: it's just only a few times, you know, for that sperm to um, impregnate the eggs, and then the rest of the time you are redundant. Mm,
1: yeah. <laughs> But still, if you remove it, um, there could be complications. That's the point, right? Mm, Absolutely. Uh, We have another question um, for Dr. George. Is the MRI of the prostate available in KL? And how come it's not promoted by urologists? Mm,
2: Okay, right. I mean, it's... I I am not hundred percent sure. Um, well, th- there are several t- different type of M- MRI. Um, you know, its accuracy depends on its Tesla. And then um, you know, we have various hospitals in town that actually have specific um, uh, resolutions uh, to find out uh, these. And in order to make it accurate to detect whether cancer is there or not, you need to have somebody a radiologist who's um, b- b- perhaps specialize in this area. And in Malaysia, we don't have that. And, you know, um, we probably would advise patients to have a biopsy instead. However, you know, what Trinity was highlighting in the UK, it is on the research basis that MRI is to detect the presence or, um, you know, um, non-presence of the cancer. However, you know, we can give you statistics. You know, it looks like cancer. It's 90% cancer. But we still need that tissue to tell you it is or it isn't and whether it's aggressive or not aggressive.
1: Finally, to close off because we're running out of time, um, we've been talking a lot about prostate cancer, and a big part of that, I suppose, is awareness. You know, if you, you wouldn't know to go and ask to get tested or to go for regular screenings if you aren't aware um, of the importance of prostate health. Now, from a Malaysian perspective, from an American perspective, um, how, how far along are we in terms of prostate awareness and how much further do we need to go?
2: Well, I mean, in Malaysian viewpoint, I mean, I I want to compare in term of like the number of cancer. Although we don't have that many number because the Asian men are probably not as at risk, but the number is increasing because of Western lifestyle. But I think we, we I'm worried because we have a nation that is getting uh, more and more aged and we have this big problem. We only have three robots in a country. How many robots do you have in the United States? Well, we have six at Johns Hopkins. Uh, six so. in one hospital, and we have three in the whole yeah. country. So how do we catch up? You know, we need to serve 30 million people. So therefore, it sums up that we have a lot of catching up to do so you know that's why trinity is here trying to help us you know to see how to manage uh, prostate cancer and then also the complication of prostate cancer in the men's health summit and really valuable uh, experience that will help us to see whether we can actually catch up really yeah, absolutely
1: there is one last question i lie uh someone is has snuck in energetic malaysian um dear doctors i'm close to 60 my medical is done every year uh blood pressure sugar Blood pressure and sugar okay, cholesterol okay. I am a smoker. My concern now is that my erection only lasts a couple of minutes and I can't control my spill. Even Viagra uh, doesn't work. My prostate is checked. There are no issues. I can't speak to my doctor about this. Please help.
0: So. Uh, If the little blue pill is not working, it doesn't give you the ability to sustain an erection because really in order to have uh, what we describe as satisfactory sexual intercourse, you have to have a good sustainable erection. If that is not effective, then the next step. The next step, and once again, this is the urologist should be doing this. You should be asking this question, and is that uh, you do something called injection therapy, which is where you actually uh, inject into the penis a medication that will allow you to have better blood flow, better flow of blood into the penis to allow it to be uh, more rigid for a longer period yeah, of time. That's how
2: men were treated before the blue pills, right, right? right? But the thing is that one thing I want to add is that you know, in Malaysia, um, many patients will turn up to pharmacists and purchase right. the blue pills without counseling. So there are some do's and don'ts with the blue pills. Like, for example, uh, you know, don't mix with alcohol, don't mix it with your fatty food. I really would urge that, um, you know, the listener to perhaps go and see a doctor and see you're taking the pills properly because the success rate is pretty high, right? It's, it's I mean, with, great. Well, yeah. he's
1: clearly going to his doctor. I mean, he's yeah. getting his yearly checks and so, so on. The, he's just uh, feeling unable to talk about it.
2: Well, he's well, unable to talk about it. That's why he cannot be open to talk about, you know,
0: uh, the blue pills not working. But I, I'll add to this. If you are an active smoker, that also <laughs> is going to impair the blood flow. Um, and actually, smoking is one, is the, is ranks up there as one of the highest risk factors for sexual dysfunction. And actually, if you stop smoking, it actually can improve blood flow.
2: Yeah, you know, I mean, you can't just holding the cigarettes in one hand and say the blue pills don't work, right? You can't do that, right?
1: <laughs> so there you go, Energetic Malaysian. I hope we answered your question. Um, thank you both very much for coming in today.
2: Pleasure. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed it. I did. Thank you.
1: Dragged you here despite (laughs) jet lag.
2: You can go back to bed now.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I've been speaking today with Dr. George Lee, consultant urologist, um, and our guest, Dr. Trinity Vivalakwa, Director of Urologic Oncology uh, from Johns Hopkins Hospital. We've been talking about prostate cancer and prostate health, uh, and I suppose the message here is if in doubt, speak to your urologist. Um, You have been listening today to Health and Living on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.